0: Evening, we are uh, in the book of Revelation again, chapter four and five. We're going to take a look at both chapters four and five this week and next week. We'll focus in on chapter four, um, but really chapter four and five kind of serve as as um, sort of one big picture um, that's being painted. And so we really got to take a look at them together, um, which we're going to do. But we'll start with um, we'll start by just looking at focusing in on chapter four. Um, and next week, so this what you'll notice is when we first get started out, I'll, I'll be comparing a little bit of chapter 4 and 5, um, and then I'll be focusing in on chapter 4, and then next week we'll be looking at chapter 5 and then kind of comparing the, the two chapters together to understand them together as, a, as one big sort of painting. Um, so we are moving from what has been the prologue so far. So chapters 1 through 3 really kind of serve as a prologue, an introductory vision, um the messages to uh the revel- uh the the messages to the churches um and then we're kind of now in chapter four getting into the beginning of the of the vision of the the revelation and so um again we'll be spending this week and next week in chapters four and five and if if we'll see how it goes, we might end up spending a third week um i've decided i'm going to take my time as we go through it, and so if it takes a little bit longer, it'll be all right um yeah. So let's, uh, let's just kind of, I mean, I've kind of already emphasized this a lot, but um, we're really moving now into the apocalyptic part of the, of the text. And so, again, the whole book is, is called an apocalypse. Again, apocalypse just is the word revelation. Um, It doesn't mean destructive, end of the world. You know, that's not what apocalypse means. Apocalypse means reveal, to reveal something. And so that's why we say revelation. Those words are really the same word. They have the same meaning. Um, And so, again, the whole book is also a letter, right? So it's the whole thing is a letter, not just those first parts of the messages. The whole thing is a letter. And we'll see that at the end of the book of Revelation. He kind of concludes it like a letter. But the whole thing is a letter being sent to the church but it's also um, an apocalypse, and that's the, a that's the type of literature. It's a type of—it's um, a genre of literature, like we have westerns or sci-fi. And so um, it's just kind of important to keep that in mind, and especially now that we're moving from, you know, that introductory vision that, that John has and into those messages to the church from Jesus. And now as we move into um, the actual— you know, sort of the meat of the, the revelation of the, of, the, of the apocalypse, it's important to remember what that is. That apocalypse, it doesn't mean end of the world. Um, it means revelation, and it's actually a literary genre in the Bible. We have several other books in the Bible, like it: Ezekiel, Daniel, um, four Ezra, and one Enoch, which are not actually biblical books, but they are um, sort of extra-biblical um, text. And so again it is uh, apocalypse is a, is full of symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. All right, I really like that this is zooming in on on, on our uh, poster over here. It is it it it's a symbolic visions. That's what apocalypses are. They're symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history. All right. And so a heavenly perspective on history, and we're going to see that this evening as we move into that. Um, and so, um, again, just a reminder: we're looking at a genre, literary genre, and when we look at apocalyptic literature. Um, another note that we need to make is that really from here to the end, chapter four through twenty-two, um, it's really not chronological. If you read, if you sit down. And read all the way through the book of Revelation, which I encourage you to do. Um, I'm going to give you another resource to to listen to it. Just sit down and listen to the whole book of Revelation at one time. It'll take you about an hour and a half, maybe a little bit less than an hour and a half um, to do. Um, But if you just sit there and listen to all of it, what you're going to find is that it's really not chronological. Um, It's not this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Now, Now, John uses that language. He says, after this I saw. And so he's telling the order of which he saw things. But if you pay really close attention to it, it's not like he's saying this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. Um, rather, he's kind of painting a picture. He's, he's giving us a picture um, and, and a lot of it overlaps. So he says something at one point um, that is really a part of, you know, the the um, I'm trying to think of an example for us. But there's one point where you're seeing um the 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 end right um I, I preached on this when we were going through revelation um in chapter seven and eight i believe you get this image of what the what the what the final end looks like um and there's this multitude of people who are who are worshiping god but then after that we have all this cosmic sort of like uh, um, apocalyptic <laughs> um sort of sorts of events these really these was really terrible things that happen after that right and so that that kind of feels so. It's not chronological, is what I'm trying to say. It's not. Um, it's not in perfect order as he as he's, as he's sharing his vision, um, and so that's important to keep in mind as we move forward. Um, and so again, John is painting a picture. He's painting a picture in the whole book. That's why it's really helpful to read it at, at one time. Um, and so we're moving into chapters four through five, um, and what you're going to see here in chapters four through five is um, is the is really the beginning of it. And so let's, uh, there's two parts really, chapter four and five. Chapter four um, focuses on um, the one who is on the throne, while chapter five focuses on the lamb. Um, And so today we're going to focus on um, the one who is on the throne, and next week we'll be focusing on the lamb. And so there's this important connection there. All right, so I found this, and it's really, really neat, and I've got a link for it on the back of your thing all the way at the end on the very back page um, this church i believe it's called christ community church i'm not sure where it is i don't know anything about the church but that i found this on youtube and it's really neat they do they just had a sunday night or, or an evening service rather where they just came and they did this dramatic reading of revelation all at one time and again it's a, I think it's an hour and 23 minutes um, and I, I just kind of went and I wanted to hear <clears throat> chapters four and five together. I want us to hear those two chapters together tonight. We're going to focus in on chapter four, and next week we're going to ch- focus in on chapter five, but I thought it'd be neat tonight for us to listen to, to this dramatic reading of chapters four and five. Um, yeah, so let's let's just listen, and, and if it helps you to for your imagination and all to close your eyes and help to help you picture and imagine what John is telling the people about, Um, feel free to do that. But let's listen.
1: Chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said... Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after
0: this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings." Day and night, they never stop saying,
1: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things,
0: and And by your will they were created and and have their being. Chapter 5 Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals.
1: The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of ensigns, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because You were slain and with your blood you purchased for gods from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, health and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and
0: glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, singing, to
1: Him who Boo! <laughs> I watched
0: as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Again, they do that. Um, they they read through the entire book in one night. It's really powerful. Um, yeah. So uh, what we see in these two in these two chapters is this again this big image that's being painted. Um, the 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 throne room of God is being painted for us, and we'll talk about this some um, this then a little bit but but later as well. But this. Um, this section of Revelation probably produces more Christian um, art, um, and I mean um, music especially, the amount of worship songs that pull their imagery from chapters four and chapter, chapters five. Um, are, it, it's just there's so many, and it's because the imagery is so powerful for, for worship, and that's really ultimately what we want to focus on. Um, but again, so chapter four, as it's painting this image, um, chapter 4 focuses in on the throne, the one on the throne, um, and chapters 5 focuses on the lamb. Um, and so this evening, we're going to focus in on, um, on the, the one on the throne, and then next week we'll, we'll focus in on the lamb. And so that's what we have. We have two images. Um, and Michael Gorman um, says that the essential theology of the book of Revelation is this, God, the creator, reigns and is worthy of our complete devotion. And Jesus, the faithful, slaughtered Lamb of God, reigns with God, equally worthy of our complete devotion. Um, and so what he explained, he, you know, he's kind of explaining even further there that um, this is a paradox, right? There's two paradoxes here, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit next week. We'll focus in on them as well. But there's two paradoxes, and, and that means it kind of seems like they're, uh, they're contradicting each other. Um, and one is this idea that God shares sovereignty. God shares the throne ultimately, um, and um, what the second paradox comes out of like who He is sharing the throne with. God is sharing the throne with a slaughtered lamb. Now we know that the slaughtered lamb represents jesus that 's who Jesus is is the slaughtered lamb right who 's been raised, um, but this idea that the messiah, the, the promised one, the anointed one from God, comes. As a slaughtered lamb, that's who he is. That's how Jesus exercises his power, right, is by dying um, and being raised. And so this idea, this this paradox of, first of all, that God is sharing a throne um, with this lamb and that this lamb represents God's power. This This lamb represents God's might. Um, and I think that the first paradox, this idea that God is sharing a throne, we've got to keep in mind. And, and Revelation has some of the best um, Trinitarian theology. I've talked a little bit about this, but there's even a mention of seven spirits in front of the, st- the throne. And a lot of people believe that that represents the Holy Spirit. And so you have here a picture of the Trinity in this throne room. And so um, this, this is an important image, um, so much so that really it becomes, it becomes a central Um, image of the entire book um, which we'll see that as we go along so let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6a again and you heard those that read just now but let's read it again after this i looked and there in heaven a door stood open and the first voice which i had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and i will show you what must take place after this at once i was in the spirit and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like a crystal. Um, First of all, I want to ask, does, does anybody notice anything about the grammar in this? Anything unique about what the grammar does? This is something really, really easy to just miss completely if you're reading it. Um, But this is a vision now that John had, right? By the time he sits down and and writes this vision down and sends it to the church, and certainly by the time the churches read it, and certainly by 2,000 years later, when we're standing here, sitting in this room, reading this this book, it's past, right? These are visions that have happened, Right? But listen to how he changes. He, he starts out after this, and he kind of goes back and forth throughout the, the, the um, vision. Um, but, but what he does, he starts out, he's saying, I looked. So that's past, right? I looked in the past and saw, right? There in the heaven door. And the first voice said, I, heard, I, ha- I had heard, right? That's all past. Um, says, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on, seated on the throne. So up to this point, it's all past. He's explaining to the people what he saw. But listen, he says, And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian. Um, looks, right? Now, if he was saying this happened in the past, he would say looked. Looked like Jasper and Carnelian. Instead, he says Looks. He's describing something for us, and he says there is a rainbow that looks like emerald. So he he switches, and then even down here, um, which are the seven spirits of God, and in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass. What John has done is he switched from describing it as like something that happened for him in the past to being something that is currently happening. Um, and really, what he's trying to do again is he wants you to paint a He wants to paint a picture for us. Okay? He wants you to imagine what he is seeing. Um, and I think that's such an important note as we're reading the book of Revelation. John wants you to be able to imagine it. If we're only just overanalyzing little things, little words, little um, phrases or sentences, or, or even like here where he uses these different colors and gems, and if we're overanalyzing those, we might miss what he's ultimately trying to do. What he's really trying to do is give us a picture He's trying to paint something for us. He wants us to see what it is that he witnessed. Um, And so let's begin thinking about this. Where are we? If we're we're, we're with him, we're we're being transported into his vision with him, we're imagining it, where are we? Here's the throne room, right? Okay, throne room. Yeah, where where, where is the throne room? Right
1: here.
0: (laughs) Heaven, right? I mean, he says that, right? So, um, and there in heaven, a door stood open. Um, so, uh, not here, right? Heaven. Um, and even, it's even described as, you know, he, um, when, the, when the voice says, it says, come up here, right? And so we've always kind of imagined as, as, as Christians, as the, our Christian imagination has sort of imagined heaven as, as up, right? Above us, Right? Um, and and I think I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we'll probably get into this and in, in later. But um, part of what I really want to emphasize is that throughout the rest of the Re- book of Revelation and even even here, I think that what it's not this imagination that it's somehow like in another world, like in a, in another dimension, right? Um, that's kind of where I imagine our our minds might go. Like you need a like you need a portal to get there, right? Um, because throughout the Bible and throughout re- the rest of Revelation, what ultimately up there means is that it transcends the the where we're at now, right? It transcends. And that's actually why they end up using the word heaven to describe God's throne room is because the heavens, right, is where that comes from. The, the heavens are, you know, the sky. And so um, this idea that there's this, it's, it's this transcendent view. Um, but ultimately what Jesus comes to do is to sort of, Merge heaven and earth right there's going to be a new new heaven and new earth, right, and so this idea that new creation is coming um, but but really what's taking place here is that he's being given remember what I said earlier that revelation all is is it's a heavenly perspective on history it's a heavenly perspective on the history of humanity on the history of the planet as it is you know, and so he's he's being transported. Um, But not like I shouldn't use that word. I guess I'm trying to say not that word. He's he's being shown this vision um, of 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 a heavenly perspective on the world. And it starts out here in this throne room. Right. He's first kind of introduced to the throne room. And that's what chapters four and chapters five are. Um, So um, how did we get here? We know where we are now. How did we get here?
1: somehow when says says he was like in spirit and the angel was mm. you know yeah. allowed him to yeah. step into that throne room or right. step over or wherever
0: you know? yeah yeah so uh, it's not by anything that John's doing right and I think that's really what I want to emphasize is that um, he is being um, brought um, the voice um, from the from the first the first voice which i heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and i will show you what soon must take place so that voice is the voice of jesus um he he tells us that by saying the first voice which he had heard speaking to me like a trumpet that's way back in chapter one the voice of jesus comes like a trumpet and so whenever he says that it's jesus right so jesus is in sending this invitation to john It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And so it is Jesus revealing this image to John. Um, I want you to think about, I I mean, look through this again. It's It's on your sheet as well. Just kind of glance over what descriptors of what he's seeing stand out to you. What descriptors stand out to you? okay the jewels yeah 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 everything's in relation to what jewels look like okay yeah
1: good well I mean you know I guess the doorway something he had to step through to get there you know the 24 elders you know apparently and has been pitching his throne 12, 12 of his elders on each side maybe yeah.
0: yeah. like a huge
1: room. Sure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I standing
0: Right. Yeah, so they have their own thrones, right? So it's described as a throne that they're sitting on, right? Yeah. What else? What what other um, descriptors from these verses stand out to you?
1: Dressed in white
0: okay. Dressed in white. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, so I wanna just take a look at some of these images, some of these symbols. Oh yeah? Kinda
1: makes
0: you wonder what
1: it is you saw there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so the noise, even 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 he's hearing things, right? Not just visually, but hearing things as well. Yeah. So, a few few important things. I just want to highlight a throne, right? This is the first thing that John sees. He sees first a throne. Um, what, What does a throne represent? Right, power. Okay, right. So, a throne represents someone with authority and power, right? And so, um, that, I mean, that's the very first thing that he mentions. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne. He is first kind of um, honing in on the throne that he sees. Um, and then he goes on to describe it. But I, I think, first, again, I've, I've mentioned this in several, in probably every lesson, um, the images, the symbols that we're going to see over and over again in the book of Revelation, pretty much all of them are coming from Scripture. They are Old Testament Symbols that are kind of that are kind of making a a reappearance here in the Book of Revelation, and so um, theophanies, which is just a a revelation, a a grand um, experience of God's presence. When they happen in the Old Testament, a lot of these things happen. So. Throne and flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. Like those, that description is often what it was like when God sort of showed up to the people of Israel or to individuals in Israel's um, history. Um, and so a, a rainbow that looks like emerald, um, the, these, are, these are images that are taken straight from, you know, I mean, they're just, again, showing back up the images that appeared in the Old Testament that happened in the Old Testament, and they're showing back up here again. So in Exodus, you can find a lot of this, um, a lot of the, the stuff around the mount, mountain of Sinai, right? There's these, there's thunder, there's smoke, there's lightning coming, right? Um uh, First Kings even has some imagery from that that, were, that was experienced of God showing up uh, specifically chapter twenty two. Isaiah six is a really famous one where where God's throne where Isaiah kind of ends up in God's throne room right and he describes what what he sees there um, and so and then Ezekiel one and Daniel as well have all of these images and so these these are images from the Old Testament that we're seeing once again here at Revelation. Um, Another one is the one seated on the throne looks like Jasper and Carnelian. So these are, again, um, um, stones, right? So precious stones that are being mentioned. Um, I think that this is so interesting, the way that he describes the one seated on the throne. This is it. This is like the only description. He says the one seated on the throne looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And that's it. Like that's the only description of what God looks like for, for, um, for John. That's all he sees. He doesn't... It's almost like he doesn't know how to describe what he saw. He just he, and so he uses these um, precious stones to sort of describe what it what it was. Um, he and so it's a vague term that simply describes the figure that he sees as beautiful. Um, and then um, right after that, we hear and the, around the throne is a rainbow that looks like emerald. So I read that there's a possibility that the Greek word for emerald here. Um, wouldn't refer to one color, one colored stone. It actually could have been, there was actually several stones um, in that time period that were, were referred to as emeralds um, that had different colors. I think an emerald nowadays is like green color, uh, but, they, but they had emeralds that they had different stones that they called emeralds. And so it was this idea that this one stone that actually in their time was multiple colors. And so what does, a, when you hear the word rainbow, what do you think of? okay colorful right specifically in old specifically in old testament if we're thinking of an old testament image what do we think of when we hear rainbow know, right so this is a so this is god's promise to noah after the after the earth is flooded um, god gives a rainbow in the sky um, and it's a sign of God's mercy, right? That's that's what it becomes in the Old Testament. It becomes a symbol of God's mercy. Specifically, this is kind of the first covenant we we hear about with in God. You know, in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant um, of this specific thing that there will not be a flood that destroys the entire earth, right? And so, the rainbow becomes this symbol of God's mercy um, and, and the idea that um, that God is going to to continue to withhold the waters of of the flood. Um, And so, yeah, that ends up being a really important thing for us to keep in mind is a rainbow that is surrounding God's throne, a reminder of God's mercy, a reminder of God's mercy. That is going to be really important as we get into the book of Revelation. And um, there's lots of of talk of judgment, right? Um, And we need to embrace that. We need to look at it. We need to understand it really well. Um, But ultimately, um, what is central to who God is on the throne is mercy, right? There's this, this element of God who is merciful, right? And that's an important thing as we think about God as being a just God who brings judgment as well. Um, and then around the throne are 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders. Um, any ideas what this might represent, what 24 might, what that number might represent? yeah 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 right so 12 plus 12 12 is um a, another number of perfection right um, or, or of completion um when you hear that number 12 when you break 24 and half and you have 12 now what do you think about in the scripture 12 12 tribes of israel, tribes of israel. is there another 12 we got to jump from the old testament to the new testament to find another with the other one Twelve disciples, right? Twelve apostles. Um, um, I think I told you this when we first got started. uh, um, What some scholars, what one of my favorite uh, pastors, um, Scott Daniels, who is a pastor over in um, in Idaho, he says that um, as he kind of goes through Revelation, he likes to rate, like on a scale of one to ten, how how good we he might think that this. Assumption of what a meaning might be is Uh, He rates this a 10 Okay, He's like I'm pretty sure this is what it represents Now if you read different scholars They might have different theories on what the 12 And 12 or what 24 might be He says he he feels pretty confident That the first 12 represent the tribes Of Israel or the patriarchs Of Israel and then the other 12 Represent um, the 20 Or the 12 apostles um, of Christ And so you get this number 24 Um. And then there's this idea that there is a sea of glass, like crystal, in front of the throne. Um, we're going to hear about this again in, um, in Revelation, the sea of glass. Um, but there, there's also an, one other image that this might be being pulled from, from the Old Testament. Exodus 24, um, 10, another um, theophany of God, an appearance of God. Um, that, that verse says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu... The seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Okay, so this is a theophany; they're they're experiencing the presence of God. And it says, under his feet there was something like pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And so, again, another image from the Old Testament that we're seeing there. Um, besides the Old Testament imagery that we're we're picturing here. Um, a lot of scholars think that John is also sort of playing on um, on Rome again. So a lot of what we get into is going to be about Rome, um, and he thinks that this imagery of the throne room of chapters four and five were actually would actually have been a common way that um, Roman imperial court would have been set up, um, and so the empire would just um, to, to sit and, and do like some judgments or whatever they would sit. And what they would have is they would, um, you know, and the, there's this transition between, is it a Republic or is it an empire Rome? Right. And so you had um, you had different uh, leaders of different parts of the country who kind of served as senators sort of in a way their, their power was really limited though. And so what you end up having a lot of times was this, this courtroom where the, the empire was sitting on throne and the senators or even his advisors or whoever it might be would be surrounding him. And here, and I just found this image of, of that sort of, of imagining what that looked like. Sure enough, they're wearing white robes, right? Um, and so there's this, there's this imagery, not just that's being pulled from the Old Testament, but also of, of the imperial court. Again, this is being written to people in the Roman Empire. Um and so uh sort of what's being said there obviously um is a is a um saying there's there's two powers, right? Yes, there's the Roman power there, who has a courtroom, but here we have another image of a courtroom. And so to, to kinda keep that in mind, I think that's an interesting thought that, that John might be considering also and and that image he might be picturing what Rome what Roman imperial court looks like. All right, let's let's Kind Sorry,
1: of like the Sanhedrin or whatever they call it.
0: Sure, yeah, it was, it was a court, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Sanhedrin would have been a, would have been the Jewish leaders, and that's exactly right how they would have been set up. It would have been a group of people from the Sadducees and the uh, and the chief priests, right, and the and the priests of the of the nation. All right, let's look at um, verses. Uh, this is picking back up on verse six um, B and then through eleven. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders fall before the th- the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Um. So obviously the most powerful, the most uh Um, specific image that we get here are these four creatures. Um, Again, this is another imagery from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 10. Um, He describes um, almost the exact creatures that John is is seeing here. Um, They're slightly different. Um, I can't remember one of the creatures is slightly different. Um, But for the most part, he's picturing the same thing. Um, There's lots of different, again, there's lots of different ideas on what these creatures might represent. One that used to be really popular that is not as popular now for scholars to believe, um, but I still really think it is a neat, um, a neat theory on what this symbol means, um, but again, it might, not, it might not have the scholarly backup as it, as it did. I think that regardless of what this is, what John was, um, the, the reason John was witnessing it, and this is what John interpreted it as, I think it is true Um, This rabbi, um, Abahu, um, from AD 300, says this. There are four mighty creatures. The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest of them all is the human. And God has taken all these and secured them to his throne. Um, And so this kind of... Interpretation that what what Ezekiel saw and, and then what John was seeing represents um, represents all the mighty creatures um, uh, you know like the mightiest of creatures and in that way um, it represents all of the creatures if it's the mightiest um, if it's the mightiest wild animal then it's all the wild animals if it's the mightiest bird it's all the birds if it's the mightiest um, domesticated animal then it's all the domesticated animals and if it's the might and if it's the human the mightiest of them all it is certainly all of creation all the creatures and so these these um creatures these living creatures come to sort of represent everything um and so here in god's throne room all of creation is represented uh, represented by uh, as worshiping god the one on the throne. Um, Does this sound familiar to you? Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, it's actually like a bunch of songs, right? (laughs) Like um, there's one uh, particular uh, hymn that that popularized using this in a song. But um, I know that there's been other songs that have come along and used this language, right? Um, Any other thoughts on on that sounding familiar? So mentioning the music that it, that, that. Christian worship songs that are using it now any anything else Again thinking backwards right not forward from it but backwards Old Testament um again a lot of the imagery that we're seeing here is coming from Isaiah chapter 6 when when Isaiah is in the throne room and he sees um seraphim and um and and the creatures as well um what he hears them singing is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, this last line is the one thing that John 's account adds, who was and is and is to come. Um, and so again, it lots of imagery being pulled to use for our worship songs, but also um, here um, from the Old Testament as well once again um, so let's let's uh, catch this last section. The 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord God, and receive to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Um, and I think this is so, so unique that you have these creatures worshiping um, and it seems like they sort of have this, um, what's called liturgy, right? So um, it's prayers that are Pre written that, that we read. I, I don't know if anybody has noticed this, but when Mary Elizabeth and I prepare our worship services, some of our prayers are repeated, some of our prayers are written down that we read. Other of our prayers are not written down. They're they're more extemporaneous, we would say, extemporaneous prayer. And so there's this idea of, and that's liturgy, right? So it's pre-written and we read it each week. Every time we pray over the offering, we say the same words. Um, And that's because it forms us when we repeat words over and over again. We have this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty that again is being repeated according to, to the text. It's Day and night, all the time, these creatures are saying it. And we have record in the Old Testament of this same thing happening. And so there's this liturgy that is being repeated by these creatures. Um, and so I, I, this is kind of my theory. I'll just admit that. But then what you have in response to seeing that happen... You have these 24 elders, which again, if they represent the 12 tribes of, of Israel and the 12 tribes of, um, or the 12 apostles, what you have happening here is they are sort of responding to that. Um, and they, they see what is taking place and they respond. And the way that they respond is taking those crowns off that they have and laying them at the feet of the one who is worthy. And, um, and then uh, again sort of has their, have their own song. And so there's this idea that there's this liturgy that's written, um, that's organized really well, but you also have this sort of spontaneous response. Um, some people prefer their worship service just to be spontaneous, right? Let's just let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do. And then there's other traditions and religions or in and denominations that are more liturgical, right? They have everything written out. And, and I think what we see in the heavenly throne room is a little, little taste of both, and I like that. Um, ultimately, and let me see if I can get through these last few slides. Um, ultimately, what we have taking place in chapters four and five are two images, but one theme. There's two images that are going to stick, that are going to start here and kind of stick with us the rest of the book of Revelation. I mean, so I still feel like I'm kind of introducing the book in a lot of ways with these, these next two lessons. But, um, but ultimately, in these two chapters that we've listened to tonight, there's one theme. There's two images um, that we're going to focus in on, but there's one theme, and that is worship. Uh, Mitchell Reddish says, For John, the community of faith is a worshiping community. Worship is not an option or an addendum, you know, just a side thing that Christians do. Worship is at the heart of the people of God. Worship is the primary thing that we do as people of God. And then um, Eugene Peterson says this, and this, this is a very similar thing that he's saying, but even more strongly worded. Um, He says, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically, um, which which means without a center, uh, right? So living without a center. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. People who do not worship, are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. That is a really strong way of saying it. if you're if you're part of a, a, an authentic worshiping community and you are worshiping regularly um, and not um, not you know sporadically worshiping but worse, regularly worshiping, um, then then you are grounded in something, right? You have a ground, you have a grounding, you have a center that you go back to. And so um, the idea is that in those that do not worship regularly or do not worship at all, um, they're living sporadic lives. Um, they're, and part of this quote that I don't have in here, he says, you know, you're, you're moved by every whim of advertisement and every every dramatic story in the news, it, it it blows you to and fro. You don't know how to respond. You're not grounded. You're not centered. But for those who are worshiping, um, and a part and a part of a community of worship who are worshiping, we have a center. Um, that yes, um, the world might take us by off guard at times. Um, we might be tempted by advertisements. We might be tempted by things. We might be blown to and fro. But ultimately, we we have an anchor. We have a center that we that that keeps us steady, right um, through this world of of turmoil and um, tribulation. And so. Um, by emphasizing the throne in chapters four and five, what John is really doing is kind of pulling back a curtain. He, he's telling us where true power is. Again, using that imagery from the, the throne room of Rome, Rome you know, the, this this person who claims to have some supreme, ultimate creative authority, um, and, and John is pulling back the curtain to reveal who actually is sitting on the throne, um, one of the things that Mitchell Reddish also says is that the emperor may sit on his throne in Rome, but his throne is no match for God's throne. Despite his claims, the emperor is not in control of the universe. That power resides with God. And as a centering and central image in Revelation, the struggle in Reve- of Revelation can be viewed as a struggle between these two thrones. This is why it's so important for me to spend the amount of time on this as I am. Um, this is a central and centering image in the book. So as we go into the book of Revelation and we we hear of all these turmoil and all these different events, what we n- must understand is that, that this image of worshiping in the, the, the throne room is the centering image. Um, and so you have this throne room and you have another throne room. And you're going to see those two thrones really um, battling in the book of Revelation um, through vivid imagery and all. And so uh, some questions for reflection. Um, again, I kind of talked about worship and I, I like this idea that, that there's this imagery of, of, of um, planned, really well thought out, intentional worship liturgy that is taking place in the throne room. But there's also seems to be this spontaneous event as well of, um, of, the, of the elders falling down and laying their crowns down. Um, but thinking about this, about this worship scene as being central to the book of Revelation, thinking about these questions. What can we learn from this chapter about praising God as the creator of all things in our private and public worship? What can we learn from this chapter about that? I want you to think about that. Um, I also want you to think about in what ways are we tempted to downplay the importance of worship? Um, Obviously as a pastor and preacher, I think that this is so important. Um, how, how are we downplaying and, and not taking our worship seriously? Um, it's important to think about. I think, um, again, having that liturgical side, some people can respond and, and they think it's too flat or, or um, too ritualistic, um, but to, th- to think that we shouldn't um, be a part of planning what, what is going to be said and what's going to be done in the service, I think that that's not taking seriously um, the importance of our worship. Um, so, in what ways are we tempted to downplay the importance of worship? Another way that it's downplayed, I, I believe, is that for a lot of people, it's just an activity that might get done on Sundays. It might not. You know, um, whenever we uh, are preparing for worship on Sundays, we always have a, a prayer time on the platform with the praise team and anybody else leading leading in worship. And part of my prayer almost every single week is is for those people that are on the fence about coming to worship. And they don't know if they feel like it today um that the spirit would nudge them because it's important. Um we start developing habits of saying, well, if I feel like I going to church I'll go. If I feel like worshiping with the community I will. Um but I think it's really important. I think it's really um damaging to our spirits and souls um if we're not coming to worship regularly and we're not prioritizing all aspects of the worship service, right? Um so anyway, I know I'm preaching to people that come to church every Sunday whenever I talk about this. Um, then according to the elders in verse 11, why is God worthy of praise? Um, and to give you the answer to that one, because it helps you think of the next answer. God is worthy of praise because he's created all things. He is the creator. He's the one who has created all things. Um, and then to, be, to go away from here, from here really reflecting and thinking on specific reasons that God is worthy of our praise. Maybe it's personal in your life. You believe God is worthy to be praised because of this, these events that have taken place recently, or or whatever it might be personally. Or maybe it is grander, like what they're, what they're um, they're talking about here. Of, of God is worthy to be praised because. he he created those tomatoes over there and they're really good. You know, whatever it might be, it might seem simple, but this grand thing that God has done in creation is, is worthy of praise um, and important for us to to consider and think about. All right. Well, let me pray and and dismiss us since we're out of time. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for, um, for your, for for being the great God that you are while also um, being present with us and um, inviting us into the throne room. Um, that truly is what our invitation is each and every Sunday—an invitation to to join these elders and, and and living creatures in our song that "Holy, Holy, Holy" is the Lord of Host. We are so thankful and grateful that you are um, a God who um, is mighty and grand. But as we look to next week in chapter five, we say that we are also grateful that you are a God who demonstrates your power and authority in a really, really backward seeming way of coming as a slaughtered lamb and so we look forward to that and to hearing from that we ask that you would go with us in the rest of this week help us oh god to be your people centered in you so that as the the winds of of the world and of sin blow in our lives we are not tempted or drawn away from you but we are centered and we find our central central being in you go with us O oh lord in jesus name amen